Welcome back to season two of Son of a Preacher Man with Jonathan Martin, a podcast all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. The state of Oklahoma is ranked first in the country in the per capita rate of black people imprisoned, with one out of 15 black men behind bars. Julius Jones has been on death row in Oklahoma for just under 20 years. Actress Viola Davis produced a documentary on his story for ABC, The Last Defense, which presented compelling evidence both that Mr. Jones is innocent and that his rights have been violated under both state and federal constitutions. C.C. Jones Davis, last week's guest and teaching pastor at the table in Oklahoma City, was moved by his story and founded Justice for Julius, a criminal justice reform movement. She returns to facilitate a conversation with Julius from death row. You can find out more about how you can get involved at justiceforjulius.com. We hope you enjoy today's episode. This call is subject to being monitored or recorded except for privileged calls with attorneys. Do not use three-way or call waiting features during this call. Thank you for using Global Town Link. Hello. Julius. Yes. Hey, homie, it's Cece. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right in yourself. Good. Hey, listen, I want to introduce you. Um, hold on. Let me make sure the volume is turned up as far as... Yeah, it is. I want to introduce you to my friend, um, Jonathan Martin. He is the pastor uh, in OKC at a church, at a new upcoming church called The Table. And um, he's a spiritual writer. He wrote a book called How to Survive a Shipwreck. Help is on the way and love is already here. And I just thought he would be, he has a podcast, and I thought he would be an awesome person um, to kind of talk to you today. All right, cool. It's nice to meet you. Joyce, it's so nice to meet you. Really is an an honor. Thank you for taking time to, to talk with us. Not a problem, not a problem. I appreciate you making time for me. But, um, yeah. So, uh, so Julius, here's, here's, yeah, so here's what I'm envisioning, Julius. I want us to have a very relaxed conversation, okay? Uh, I want, okay. you are not under any pressure at all right now. And we just want to, here's my goal, and you know this has been one of my goals since I've known you. My goal is for you to... Uh, be your own your own advocate, your biggest and best advocate, because that's that's what you you have the capability of doing. And I want people to hear from you as much as possible. Um, like, you know, people can hear from me your story, but you have such impact when people hear your story from you. And so, um, Jonathan just made it possible for us to kind of share about your story today on his podcast called Son of a Preacher Man. Um, because he has a wide audience and I want, I want, you know, more and more people to hear. So the goal today is to just have a conversation. Jonathan is, is new to you and you're new to him. So he's going to ask you some questions. I might ask you some questions and uh, we're just going to have a conversation. Is that okay? All right. That's fine. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Well, Julius, first of all, um, I did get a chance to watch the documentary, and it's, it's extraordinary. Um, one of my new like, goals in life is I want to tell your story to as many people as possible. And as Cece said, really, for you to share your story, because I think it's such a potent one and one that people need to hear. And, um, but I guess really just kind of starting on the ground floor in terms of, um, I, I don't want to skip past this, how are you doing today? Like, w- what's going on, like, just as of this afternoon? As of today, I mean, I'm I'm all right. Just it's it's, it's rough hanging in there, and <laughs> trying to be patient. But um, I mean, I'm I'm grateful because of so much love and support, so many prayers, and you know, so many letters and cards. And I mean, I just I appreciate people's empathy. You know, uh, I I didn't even know you know it still existed. I I thought I was just forgotten. And my my whole point was, I just wanted people to know, you know, I didn't take that man's life. Um, regardless of whatever was going to happen. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry to cut you off. Let me, I probably need to do a due diligence here and give Jonathan's audience a little bit of background um, about who we are and how we've gotten here to have this conversation. So um, for the audience, the folks who are um, listening, thank you all for listening. Um, We are speaking to Julius Jones, who is sitting right now on Oklahoma's death row. Julius has been on Oklahoma's death row for the past 20 years. 
Um, 19 years and 7 months, yeah. Okay, ni- there you go. 19 years and 7 months. Um, he was convicted, he was tried and convicted and sentenced to death for the murder of um, a white businessman in the suburbs of Oklahoma, in a suburb area of Oklahoma City. Uh, Viola Davis actually did, the superstar, the actress Viola Davis actually did a documentary on his story called The Last Defense. And that's how I came to know about Julius. Um, last last July, I believe it came out on ABC and really kind of, it was three parts and really kind of went over his case um, from from another perspective other than the prosecution's perspective. And it was so eye-opening. And some of the things that were eye-opening so that I can lay a little bit of ground here um, and the reasons why I've gotten so invested and involved in Julius's story um, I was really troubled um, by, by some of the things I saw. Number one, the first thing that really bothered me was the fact that Julius had a public defense. Um, and we know that people have public defenders when they are not able to afford um, hiring their own lawyers. He had a public defense, and these lawyers were brave enough and honest enough to come on the docuseries to say, we did not do a good job in defending Julius Jones. I have never heard an attorney say that. I have never heard, and uh, and not just one, but two attorneys. I've never heard attorneys admit to something like that. Number two, there was an issue of snitch testimony where the um, the the possible actual shooter testified against Julius, um, but the possible actual shooter is the one who fit the description. Okay, that was the second thing that bothered me. The third thing, and I think most powerfully, the third thing that bothered me so much was racial bias in his case, which um, while they were in the trial, they had uh, a jury of, you know, uh, what is it, 12 people? I don't know how many people are on the jury. How many people are on the jury, Jill? 12 people. 12 people. 12 jurors and two officers. Okay, they had 12 people. Maybe, Julius, was it two of them that were African-American or people of color? One. One was black and one was a Mexican. Okay, so one was black, one was Mexican. The rest was a white, were white jurors. And there was a statement from, an alleged statement from a juror on an elevator during the trial where the juror said to the other jurors, why don't we just take the nigger in the back of the court and shoot him? and get this over with. I'm paraphrasing, but the N-word was used, and that was the gist of the statement. Another juror came forward to, um, to, to, uh, to say that that's what happened in the elevator, but there was nothing done about it. That juror was not removed from the jury, and um, ultimately we all know, of what, course— what, to, cl- to clarify that, is what they, brought, they brought the jurors back in, and, and, the, and the man who supposedly made this statement— said that he may have said something similar to that, which is what is really troubling about that, is that how is it that he admitted that he said something similar to that and he was still alive to sit on my jury? Right. And so... Like, you know, put the full context to that, you know, about whether people want to say we are uh, throwing words in there or not. Like, he literally admitted that he said something similar to that. Yeah. That he didn't actually recall what it was, but something similar to that, and they still allowed this man to sit on my jury. That's, that's insane. It's insane. It's insane. And it and um, so those were the issues in this man's case that, that brought me to Julius and Julius to me and then me to Jonathan and then Jonathan to all of you. So I just wanted to lay a little bit of that groundwork. You can watch the docuseries. Um, it's called The Last Defense. The Julius Jones story. You can watch it on his website, which is justiceforjulius.com. You can also watch it on the ABC app, and you can watch it on Hulu as well. So yeah, Jonathan, I didn't mean to take over. No, this I just is wanted so to good. This is lay, really helpful. Yeah, I just kind of wanted to to lay down. But Julius, I thought that Jonathan would be um, a great person to talk to because you know, in in my work here in Oklahoma as a person of faith. Um, it's it's been it's been challenging. It's been challenging. I think number one because a lot of people have have so much trust in the criminal justice system, and we kind of assume as Americans that like our system works and it works all the time. And right. n- next, we you know 
we have we have trouble, especially in the Bible Belt, around the death penalty. Like we're avid supporters of the death penalty, which which is. I, you know, I, w- I wonder about that though, because they oh, they don't pull everybody in the state when they do that. Ask that question. Mm-hmm. Not everybody in the state voted. So I mean, that's a, that's a you, and when you say voted, you're talking think, you're talking about the the I mean, law. The voters oh. who voted, who actually voted in the last uh, election about the bills that they passed and whatnot. The bills around the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, I got um, that, you. That wasn't a culmination of everybody in the state. Got but, you. But I mean, the, the black it was the more majority of people that voted who did vote for that. So. Yeah. Can you um, go ahead, Julius? I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say is that what what you say about as a person of faith because I I'm, I'm a, a person of faith. I don't consider myself religious but spiritual, but it, it bothers me that we have come to allow trust in a system that doesn't want to be genuinely transparent, and that's frightening. Considering they want us to be truthful, that if I misspell a word, I mispronounce a word, I'm a liar. But they don't have to show us everything that's that's and i think people should be more wary of that going on that they should be absolutely transparent because they are there to serve the community us the community not the other way around we're not here to serve them you're talking about the, our state officials like our prosecutors I mean, as, and as constituents and citizens of the state of oklahoma as well as they are in office to serve us not the other way around mm-hmm. and i and i mean that in the essence of what we have going on in this state, particularly dealing with my case, about they don't want to be straightforward and transparent. And when and Julius, makes, when Julius is sa- says that, I'm sorry, Julius, when you say that, just to, so people know what you're talking about, the um, prosecutor's office has been asked on several occasions to turn over Julius's case files so that... Um, so that his his current defense team could have a proper understanding of an event that happened 20 years ago. This case is 20 years old, and they agreed to do that, but then they backed out of that agreement. And this whole issue of transparency for people who are advocating for a retrial, the whole issue of transparency is now before us. We're like, well, doggone it, what is in the file that you would have agreed to turn it over, that you would have agreed to, but now don't? But in essence, what this does... It's really highlight a broken criminal justice yeah. system at its highest level, which is, in my opinion, life, uh, life like the death penalty, right? So anyway, I'm gonna I'm gonna drag Jonathan because I've been doing all the talking. No, this is good. I'm gonna drag you back in, Jonathan. You just you know ask whatever you would like. Well, you know, my first thoughts on all that, um, even talking about the role of people of faith in this whole situation, it's so ironic to me that. There are a lot of people of faith who believe in the death penalty at all because I actually feel like one of the major things that we learn from the cross of Jesus, who is a victim of state-sanctioned violence, is that the violence of the empire is fundamentally unjust. And what the cross does is expose unjust systems. So it's still odd for me that people of faith support the death penalty at all, notwithstanding the fact that what's the statistic of like— uh, like how, of how many people have been exonerated. Of course, we know a lot of people are not, but yeah. we, we, we have so many cases documented yeah. already uh, that have been overturned. Um, but I, I think in any case, it's not just Julius. I'd love to, um, I'd love to just ask you as a person of faith, you describe yourself as being spiritual, but not religious, uh, which makes all the sense in the world to me. I think like even some of the stuff that we're talking about in terms of really unhealthy, broken systems that Christians oftentimes support. Um, I mean, you know, there are fundamentally broken things about religious systems, just like there are, uh, uh, you know, political systems, as you know, all too well. But I'm curious, especially like at at this particular moment for you, what exactly it is that that gives you hope, if you feel hope, you know, you're you're allowed to, you don't have to feel hope all the time, but the moments when you do feel hopeful, where does that come from for you right now? Well, hope, comes from, my hope comes from wanting to make those I encounter better. Um, I will be honest, when I'm not speaking to you all or reading somebody's letters, often I'm kind of depressed, you know, because I know I'm here and trapped in this cage. But, you know, just being able to read you all's thoughts, to be able to talk to you all, be able to share um, what we can stand up to do to make our community better, those things give me hope for a better, you know what I'm saying, today and tomorrow. Um, and that's what I hope to affect, no matter what happens 
for me. Um, I just want to make our world a better place. Um, that's the way my mother and father raised me. Um, it wasn't always perfect, but that's what they raised me to do is to be, is to be, you know, a light in this world. And that's what gives me hope, you know, to, to see somebody smile, to make them laugh. I mean, those things that, that, that makes me happy. Mm. So that's, that's where my hope resides. Mm. Um, I think that sometimes we get so caught up in just saying pray for somebody, but to actually do it, to me, to actually do it makes me feel better because I'm truly hoping for somebody to be better, to get what they're looking for, what they ask God for, um, as opposed to just saying it for lip service. Mm-hmm. Because I know we get caught up in the day-to-day life and so much, you know what I'm saying, going on that we can't control, we're just trying to manage it. Mm-hmm. But I think we can control those things if we act, you know what I'm saying, in sincerity with love. Mm-hmm. Um, lo- love is correction, it's not, you know what I'm saying, yeah, a, a cruel direction. That's exactly right. Um, and what a lesson that it is, I think, in general, that love is never retribution. Um, and that's part of what is so amazing to me about you being able to say that, because I think if if anybody would have permission to be bitter or to just be angry, it would be you. And instead, I'm not, um, I don't hear bitterness. Um, I hear a really hard choice to continue to love and to make your own life and your own story a gift, um, you know, when you wouldn't necessarily have to. I'm curious as to where that where that strength comes from. Like, how do you, uh, over 19 years in, uh, find yourself in a place where you're able to choose to love, and despite the fact that you know, um, despite all the injustice that you face, to still just make that decision to be that kind of person in terms of your own soul. Like, what got you to that place? Well, a lot of reflection and prayer, um, and 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 God teaches me with the things that I love most. Uh, you know, I've, I've I've worked out and I've worked out, and you know, I was so angry that I worked out and worked out till I hurt myself. Mm. And it taught me I had to reassess how I was thinking and how I was acting because I I was so upset that I literally hurt myself. And if we continue in, in negative ways, we would continue to do nothing but hurt ourselves. And I had I had to learn that, and, and I'm, I believe God showed me that through, you know, my physical gifts. That hey, you can't do all one thing one way. You have to reassess and look at life from different angles and use what's bad for what's, what can be good. Um, and I mean, I literally had to sit down and stop exercising as much as I was because. I couldn't fuck. I couldn't function. I couldn't think straight. Mm. You know, I, I was angry. I was upset, and I had to stop worrying about the problem and start thinking about the solution. Mm. Because I couldn't just anger it away. Yeah, Julie, if that makes any sense. It does. Um, yes. Tell us a little bit about because most people don't know someone on death row. And when we think about death row, I know when I used to think about death row, I just thought about like a dark, you know, abstract place. I didn't know where it existed, but I just knew like it was dark and bad and, you know, out there somewhere. Um, And so most people don't know someone on death row. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Like what is death row actually like from day to day? When? Yeah, go ahead. Death Row, Death Row here in Oklahoma, in McAllister, Oklahoma, it's, um, I mean, we're locked down basically 24-7. I mean, we, we can't just walk out of ourselves, you know what I'm saying, without handcuffs and shackles. We have to be handcuffed and shackled and uh, escorted by two guards at all times, whether it's to go to the shower, to go to a visit, to a lawyer visit, to the infirmary. I mean, anything. We have to be, you know what I'm saying, escorted by two guards. Um, we don't have actual direct sunlight, you know, where I can feel the sun on my skin, but we can see the sunlight, you know what I'm saying, pushing through the windows at the top of the, the building. Um, the yard is inside the building. It's like a cutout at the top of it with a gate over, a metal gate over the top. Um, I mean, I've spent the last, you know what I'm saying, what is this, 2019, 17-plus years down in, in the same building um, all the time. But, I mean, the food is horrible. The water is... It's terrible. Um, I mean, it's, it's, this is a disgusting way of life. It's, 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 it's a disgusting way of existence, I should say. Um, 
Do you have interaction with other? Do you have interaction with other inmates? Um, about ten, well, eleven years ago, ten, eleven years ago, we used to go outside six at a time. It wasn't like this, but you know, they it is. I guess about ten years ago is when it started to where they locked us down, and we you know had to be handcuffed and shackled like this to go everywhere. We was we still got handcuffed and shackled back then, but not as much. Um, you have sixty seconds remaining. So to talk to other guards, I mean to talk to other inmates, we have to get through the door. Excuse me. Um, we don't we don't get to get out in the day room or anything like that. You know, saying with, with each other. So um, I know that you're gonna have to go, and then you'll call us right back to finish talking with us. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you want to go ahead and hang up now, and we'll just wait for you to call us back. Yeah, I'm gonna, have to, I'm gonna have to wait to just the right moment to call you back. Okay, no problem, no problem. And listen, when we call, okay. when you call back, we will um, pick up on what death row is like. Julius, hey, we're back with you. Thanks for calling back. Not a problem. Not a problem. We left right. off. We yeah. left off with you telling us about death row and what it's like. Uh, what else were you gonna say about it? Oh uh, yeah, I mean, we. I mean, basically, you know, on death row. I mean, we are you know in these cages twenty three hours a day, five days a week, and twenty four hours a day. Uh, you know, the other two days of the week. Um, but most of us are in, this, in, this, in these cages 24 hours a day, seven days a week because nobody really likes to get handcuffed and shackled, not knowing what time they might really go outside, you know. Uh, it's not really outside, but, you know, to the yard. Um, and we get three, five-minute showers a week, you know, while I'm at it's Monday, Thursday, and Saturday. Um, and they they are strict about their five minutes. <laughs> but, which is, is crazy to me, but... Um, I mean, that's that's basically the gist of it. Uh, you know, a lot of trapped in the cell to either read, write, or work out, and that's, that's mainly what I've been doing all this time is reading, writing, and, you know, exercising and, and meditating and praying, you know, trying not to stir these walls too much. When you pray, what do you, at, what do you say? What are you asking for? For my family to be all right. Um, you know, I try not to think about myself because I, that depresses me. But for my family to be all right, you know, for, for things to get better for them, um, for for miracles to transpire for them, uh, I mean, for other people too, mm-hmm. you know, because I know other people that they're, they're writing from time to time. They have, you know, struggles that go on in their lives. I, just, I try to, you know, I, I hope for the best for, for everyone. Um, and I think eventually it'll come back to me, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, God has God has blessed me with you all, and what what else can I what else can I ask for? Mm. The, the rest He will put into place in this moment. Mm. Um, Julius, when we were waiting for you to call us back, I was sitting here talking to Jonathan, and one of the things that I've always been curious about, and I hope it's okay for me to ask you, um, I always want to know what the I, I always want to ask you. What the perspective? What what the perspective is for someone like you on death row of death? You know, um, out here in the in the uh, in the the rest of the world, you know, um, we have people di- diagnosed, you know, with bad sicknesses and kind of have to face um, mortality in those kind of ways, um, and they probably think about uh, about death differently than. Mm than others who are, you know, who are believed to be healthy and, you know, don't have an an imminent, um, you know, mortality. What is it like for somebody like you on death row? What is, what is, what is death like? What is the concept of death like for you? Um, this might be frightening to sound to hear, but to me, death is release Hmm. from where I'm at will be. Um, the unknown of constant, you know, just of just waiting and waiting and waiting, not knowing when it might come, is is frustrating to deal with, to say the least. 
But, I mean, a lot of these guys, I know they want to live. They don't want to die. You know, they would probably, you know, be happy with a, a life sentence or something like that. Um, I can't say that. I don't want to do this. I'm not I'm not happy with just existing. Um, I do want more of life. I do want to, you know, contribute to the world in a positive way. But, I mean, I think that it, it has made me cherish the, the moments I get to talk to people, you know, whether, whoever it is, just, just the ability, to, the moment to have a conversation about anything and to try to cheer somebody up, you know, in that, in that moment. Mm-hmm. But um, I try not to worry about it because I hate where I'm at. You know, I don't like being you know, just trapped in this cage, just wasting away is what I feel like. Um, so I try to learn as much as I can. Um, and, I mean, I, just, I think that I mean, I, I view death as release, you know, saying from this, 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 this struggle of existence. Um, if, if that answers your question. Mm-hmm. It does. It does um, answer my question. Julius, you talked about cherishing the moments of interaction that you do have. What does that look like on death row? I mean, like, do, you, do you have regular interaction with other inmates? Like, are, do, you, do you have real friendships there? Like, is there space for that? Um. I, I have because I, I've had, you know, cellies from uh, for quite a bit of the time I've been here. Um, but it's kind of hard, you know, to to become friends with uh, people because I don't see their crime and I don't, you know, excuse me, I don't, we don't constantly talk about, you know, saying the crime or why they're here. Mm-hmm. You just get to know that person and to, you know, I've, I've seen three of my cellies get executed. I didn't watch the execution, excuse me, but, you know, mm-hmm. they were my cell partners and then they got executed. But, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to think, you know, this person was just here, I was just talking to him, you know. Mm-hmm. We just played a game of basketball, and now they're, they're not here anymore. Um, it, it's, it makes you not want to form relationships, but you, mm-hmm. you can't run away from life. So, um, I do talk to some of the guys near me because it's kind of hard to talk to people who are, you know, on the other side. I mean, there are people down there I've never even seen before because mm-hmm. of the way we've been locked down so much. So... Um, I mean, I try to, you know, give guys encouragement where I can. I try to, you know, tell guys about different cases if they ask me. Um, just when the moment strikes, I mean, I do talk to the people, you know what I'm saying, who are around here. I do talk to the running all the time, you know. Um, I mean, I, I think I think we need interaction or it might drive us crazy. Yeah. But because of how much we're locked down, and I mean, it's not much on TV, but the madness of the news. Because we don't have cable television anymore, so, you know, it's really anything on TV worth watching. Um, but if that answers your question. It does. Joyce, you mentioned that you read a lot these days. I'd love to know what you're reading right now. What's speaking to you? Um, at, at the moment... I was read. I have been reading a book about the monk, the lost city of the monkey god. Um, I need to finish it. <laughs> right, writing writing so many letters and reading so many letters is it, uh, kind of taking up most of my time. Where mm-hmm. I used to read a lot, but um, it's it's basically about a, a undiscovered city. It's not the actual city of the monkey god, but of jaguars and. There have been a whole bunch of con artists over time that have been saying they found this city. And they hadn't found nothing. They just bought artifacts. I mean, not artifacts, but what do you call it? Uh, souvenirs from uh, Colombia and Peru and, and just brought them back to America to act like they had found the city. <laughs> so it's, it's basically this man telling the story of how some of these archaeologists have been conning people for a long time about, you know, history. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I just, I like to read about history and to learn the way people think, you know, sometimes we think that we can, uh, uh, what would you call it, teach somebody something or, or influence somebody to think a certain way, when in reality, we have to understand how people think and the way they see the world before we can even communicate, you know what I'm saying, in an effective way with each other. And I think that's the problem we have in our society today is that we aren't thinking about what the next person is going through. We're yeah. thinking about they should pay attention to what I'm going through. Mm-hmm. And therefore we bump heads with nobody paying attention to the other. Mm-hmm. 
so that's why I like to, I mean, I like to read about history, you know, not particularly fiction, you know, books or whatnot, but about history to learn the things that I didn't learn in school um, that they should have taught us. Um, Julia. I'm sorry to cut you off. Did you want to say something else about history? No, I was just saying history is repeating itself, and we're not we have we're not paying attention to it. It's just in a more technological, you know, it's an advanced way. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. Um, I was recently told that you got um some sort of communication from Brian Stevenson. Is that right? Yes. Tell me about that. Um, uh, Brian Stevenson and the, and the, the, the equal. Mm-hmm. Hold on. Just the image. Hold on. Let me see. What did I do with that? It's called the Equal Justice Initiative. Mm-hmm. And he sent me a letter letting me know that um, they appreciated a donation that was made in my name by a friend of mine named uh, Bruce. I won't put her whole name out there just in case she doesn't want it out there, but mm-hmm. she was kind enough to make a donation in my name and he, because they work for uh, bringing social justice about all kinds of issues with our justice system from the legal standpoint to economics and all. But I know Brian Stevenson has got a lot of, quite a few people off of death row and out of prison altogether. Um, in his works and I believe he is going to at least uh, help direct my lawyers on a better way forward with my case that's Um, wonderful yes that's wonderful and just for um, Jonathan's audience a lot of folks I'm sure already know this but for anyone who doesn't um, Brian Stevenson is um, a human rights civil rights attorney here in um, the United States, based in Alabama. Um, He has worked in criminal justice for a very long time, Uh, is responsible for getting a lot of people who have been wrongfully convicted um, out of prison, uh, and several people off of death row. I'm looking at a book by um, a gentleman named Anthony Ray Hinton that I have. It's called The Sun Does Shine, How I Found Life and Freedom on Death Row. And uh, Anthony Ray Hinton is an example of a man that, um, because of the work of Brian Stevenson, um, is not on death row anymore. He spent something like 35 or 38 years on death row for a murder that he did not, ballistics proved at the end, he did not commit. 38 years for a crime he did not commit on death row. Um, And so... You know, these stories, uh, Julius's story, Anthony Ray Hinton's story, really are the embodiments of, you know, the problems that, you know, so many people have been talking about for so long in terms of need and and for the need of criminal justice reform. Um, But, you know, we have living, breathing people that we can point to who have spent their lives um, because of some sort of flaws, you know, wrongful convictions. And wrongful convictions mean... Um, a lot of different things, but I've spent a lot of pr- time right. in prison for things that they have not necessarily done. And so that's who Brian Stevenson is. And I think it's such an honor that his organization um, uh, reached out to you in that mm-hmm. way. I think that's so awesome. And you know what, Julius? Um, yeah. A couple of weeks ago, um, there was an event at Oklahoma Christian University uh, on criminal justice reform, and they hosted um, Brian Stevenson. They brought him to town. And he spoke, and he met with your parents. Uh, he was so gracious. He was so kind, and he mentioned you in his in his speech. Um, and I felt so like elated about that. That just lifted awesome. so much weight off my shoulders because you know I've been around here talking about Julius Jones, Julius Jones, and you know I'm just a random crazy lady as far as a whole lot of people. You know, you know who am I? But when somebody like um, Brian Stevenson, with his history, with his reputation, with his knowledge. Um, you know, gets up on a stage and, and says this after we have, you know, brought him to a place because we want to desperately hear from him, to hear him talk about Julius Jones. Man, that thing was so encouraging to me. So um, I'm so glad that he's been connected, it's connecting to your case. I am too. I'm, I'm, I'm greatly appreciative. Uh, I, want, I just wanted to touch on a note about uh, uh, the 
the book you mentioned, and he said he found life on death row. I think what, uh, uh, to answer part of your question about why I have the resolve I do is that I think we have learned to appreciate life more because it's been taken from us. Mm. And we are not life takers. They want, they want people to believe we are, you know what I'm saying, murderers and whatnot, but that is not who we are, and that's why we appreciate life that much more as opposed to just being angry about it. Mm. Um, again, I've had my, my moments of anger and hostility, but I'm still not a life taker, and I appreciate life and want to live. And mm. I think that's what makes us, you know what I'm saying, that way more so appreciative of it, more patient about it, because in order for us to have our case mentioned and him to get his freedom back, it's because somebody showed him love. Mm-hmm. Like you all are showing me love right now, just listening to me, talking to me, and allowing people to hear me. It gives me hope of love, you know what I'm saying, of life, of living life and being able to live life, as opposed to just being bitter and angry about it. Um, so. Um. But. I don't know. I don't know. What that's, else do you want to talk about? Well, I was just thinking that's that's just so powerful, Julius, and it makes me think about even Jesus' phrase about losing your life to find it. It's like you're there. There's a different kind and quality of life when it's lived in the face of death. There's like a letting go and a release. And I, I don't know. I just I hear that in your voice. Just that kind of it's not to in a way that you know glamorizes the situation, but there is a different kind of freedom. I think from people who have who really have grasped their own death in that way, you know, and um, there's, there's a power that comes from that, uh, the, from realizing, I guess, the things that can't be taken from you in that way. Um, just the resiliency of your own soul is just a beautiful thing to, to see. So thank you for that. Julius, you know uh, what? I, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, I appreciate that. Um, but go ahead. I was just going to ask you, and I'm sorry that I, I I butt in. I just know that you're on a time restriction, and sure. I'm trying to get in as much as as much as we can. So forgive me for talking over you. Um, you also wrote a book, right? Um, yes, I have a book of poetry. Yes. What's the name of it? Uh, Jewels from Death Row. Jewels from Death Row. And how do people get this book? Um, I believe it's on Amazon. Okay. I believe you can go on Amazon and order it. Yeah. Jewels from Death Row. Okay. On Amazon. That's that's pretty impressive. I don't know that Mm -hmm. I've heard about anybody writing a book on Death Row. You know? Like, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Well, that's that's another one of my gifts that God gave me to, uh, to, to, to endure, is to be able to just, you know, express my thoughts and, and, and rhyme. Yeah. Um. It has definitely helped me. <laughs> One of the things I think is so important, Julius, especially as people who work in justice work like me, um, it's really important for people like me to have what I, what has been coined as holy imagination, mm-hmm. right? Because I have an imagination. I see what is real and out here and exists, but then I have an imagination um, which causes me to want to see something differently, right? That does not yet exist. Uh, and I believe that I believe that imagination is from God. I believe it's holy. I wonder in your holy imagination, um, what is the future like? What is the future like? You mean in the essence of, of, your, of society as a whole or in my life? No, I'm not even talking about society. I'm just talking about Julius Jones. Um, well, to, to, to be an inspiration for people to, to want equality for all, um, I, I think we should be, as we call, are called the United States of America, I think we need to become that, um, and not just want things better for self-interest, but for, you know, my neighbor as well, my neighbor that I don't know, you know, um, that I, I haven't sat down to eat dinner with. Um, I think we need to get to that point. That's what I, I, I see, um, that the color of my skin doesn't matter, that we don't even ask that question, you know, that I just appreciate you as a human being or that I'm appreciated as a human being. Um, 
don't know how we get there. And I'm, I've been trying to think of a way to get there without having to, you know, address that same issue of, well, I'm a black man. Do you, do you see me as a dangerous black man or do you just see me as another one of your brothers? Hmm. Um, that's the question I, I, I ask myself. How do I help people understand that? You have 60 seconds remaining. Um, we're getting cut off again. Are you going to be able to call us back? No, the phone system is off until 3 o'clock. Okay, so listen, I am going to make sure that people have your contact information yes. if they want to write you. And um, we just really appreciate you taking the time to use your own voice to tell your own story. Yes, thank you so much, Julius. It's such an honor to be able to talk with you today. We so appreciate it. You as well. You as well. I, I appreciate you taking the time. You have 30 seconds remaining. And as always, I appreciate you, CC, and all you do. Um, whether you know it or not, you are amazing. Mm. I'm quite certain. I'm quite certain God has whispered that to you a time or two. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that, bro, but listen, I'm out here on these streets doing the best I can. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> and tell my little sister I love her. Okay, I will. Mm. Antoinette, who right. loves you? Tell my love she right. loves you. We'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye. Well, Julius is right. We all think you're amazing, Cece. Oh, well. There's a consensus on that. (laughs) Oh, shucks. Sorry. Do we, um, while we're still together, do you want to say a bit in terms of um, where folks go from here? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So since I saw The Last Defense, um, let me tell you kind of my process. Oh, this is great. So I watched The Last Defense and I literally did not sleep the night, that night. Wow. I was so troubled in my spirit about mm-hmm. what I saw. And as a person that, I'm not from Oklahoma, but as a person that's now living in Oklahoma City, I was like, oh no. Like there's no way in the mm-hmm. world I can see that yeah. and like go about my day and go about my life mm-hmm. like nothing's going on. Like I'm just not able. So... I got up um, the next, I, I, I waited for the sun to rise, right? Because I was still awake. I waited for the sun to rise, and his lawyers, his current lawyers who are in the docuseries, um, uh, I Googled them, found them, called them, and I was like, you know, what can I do to help? Um, advocate for this young man to have a retrial. And, you know, they probably thought I was just their normal quack call, you know, mm-hmm. haven't seen a movie, nail calling, you know. Sure. And they were like, oh, yes, ma'am, you know, write a letter, you know, this is who you need to write a letter to. And I was like, um, okay, but no. Like, <laughs> like there's got to be something else. So um, so I just got, I, I met um, Julius's mother and father mm-hmm. and sister and brother. So you initiated that? Yes. Wow. So after I got on the phone with them, I start, I organized them a community meeting. Because mm-hmm. I was wondering who else in Oklahoma or elsewhere has wa- have watched The Last Defense. Mm-hmm. And if you have, are, have, did you, have you slept? Because I haven't slept. Mm-hmm. We need to talk about this, right? And so um, I pulled together a community meeting where about 30 people came. And again, I'm new to Oklahoma City, fairly. And so it's not like I know everybody in the world. But I put it on mm-hmm. Facebook. And like 30 people showed up, including Julius's family. Mm-hmm. Well, his family did it for me. And let me tell you a little bit about these people. Um, the, the day that we had um, the, the filming, I'm sorry, excuse me, not the filming. We haven't done any filming, people. I have not done any filming. The day that we had the meeting, the first community meeting, and his parents came, we met at Edmund Trinity Christian Church, mm-hmm. where Don Heath is the pastor, and he happens to be the head, the chair of the coalition, uh, the Oklahoma Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. Oh, wow. And so we had the meeting there. And his, when his parents came in, his mom sat behind me. I was on like the first row. His mom sat behind me. And it was something about this woman's presence that was so familiar to me, like as a black woman. Mm. Like, like I didn't know her, but I knew her. Mm. You know what I mean? I knew her presence. Mm-hmm. I've had, I have cousins and aunts. She reminded me of my grandmother. You mm. know, she just had this, this presence. But along with that presence comes sometimes what is packaged in, in black woman essence, which is um, burden. Mm. She had a lot of burden. Mm. And it was palatable. Like, like I could feel it coming off of her. Mm. It was rolling off of her. And I remember during the meeting, I was so uptight because I was just so upset about what I had seen on The Last Defense. And I was so uptight and I was so upset. But this lady had a calm. 
but she was also kind of bent over. And she reminded me of the scripture that talks about the woman who was bent over for 18 years. And so here we are in the middle of the church, and there's Mm. a woman that's been bent over at that point, his mother, for 18, 19 years. Mm. She's literally, her shoulders were literally kind of hunched over, and she kind of picked her head up to smile at you and to greet you, and she was very Mm. pleasant and very polite. But it was this overwhelming sense of burden. Mm. And all that I could kind of, um, after I left that, I, you know, it just, it felt like she was carrying the death penalty on her shoulders. Mm. That's how it felt to me. Mm. And so when I, um, when I was sitting there on the front row, I just leaned back and, and held her hand and, excuse me, I didn't know if I was holding her hand because I was trying to comfort her because I didn't know her. So I didn't know how she was actually feeling, but we were sitting here talking about her son. And we were talking about her son who's on death row and has been on death row for 20 years. If I mean, And I'm a mama, and I can imagine how that must feel, right? I didn't, so I didn't know if I was comforting her or if I was reaching back for somebody to comfort me because yeah. I was so stressed out mm-hmm. by the whole situation. But it was something about connecting with Julius's mom mm-hmm. that has grounded me in this work and has caused me to be more committed than I have ever been probably to anything in my life. I'm a pretty mm. steady person. I'm a pretty committed person. When I say I'm going to do something, I yeah. usually do it. But this, I will not be able to let go because that man has a mother yeah. and a father and a family who has suffered in a way that I hope I will never in my life experience. Mm-hmm. I've been close enough on it to know that I would never want it for another soul on the face of the earth. Yeah. And so it was something about his mother's presence that really grounded me. She was like, you know, I talk in terms of of the Bible. She was like Mary. She was like the woman that was bent over for 18 years. But she was also like Mary, Mm -hmm. you know, watching her son being being paraded to an ultimate death. Mm -hmm. Right. And. And it was almost like I was trying to be John in that moment, maybe to comfort her in some way. Right. Um, I don't know what it's like to be a woman bent over for 18 years by anything. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it is to be a Mary who's, who's watching her son head to his, mm-hmm. to his demise. I don't know what any of that is like. Mm-hmm. But, but she grounded me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I haven't been the same ever since. I haven't, no. I haven't been right. <laughs> I haven't been the same ever since. And so Sounds like a, a truly a powerfully spiritual experience. An, and, an explicitly oh, spiritual experience. Oh, my gosh. That's a calling. It's a straight up calling mm. because if I had any sense, if, if like this was something logical, I would be able to, to take a break. Yeah. I'd yeah. be able to leave it alone. But it's yeah. like God's hand has been in my back about mm. uh, this boy's story. So we leave that meeting that day, Jonathan. We leave the meeting that day and we, you know, we said, hello, we said our goodbyes. I come home and get my daughter who says, Mommy, let's go to Olive Garden today. She never says Olive Garden. Mm. I love Olive Garden. <laughs> I didn't ask any questions. I was like, get in the car. We were going to Olive Garden. We get in the car. We're driving up this this street, and there's a stretch where they're like, you know how you have restaurants on both sides yeah. of the street. Like, you could eat anywhere, yeah. right? But we get into Olive Garden. The place was pretty quiet, pretty empty. They take us to this section, sit us down. I look over to my right, to my left, and that's Julius Jones, mama, daddy, and sister. Wow. Wow. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to other folks, Mm. but we say hello. We just saw each other at the church. Mm. Hey, y'all. They say, thank you again. Okay, great. Mm. I'm eating my raviolis or whatever it is I'm eating. My my breadsticks and salad, because that's what I live for when I go there. (laughs) And they eat, and they leave, and we say goodbye, and they leave. And when the waitress comes to bring me my check, she says, oh, your check has already been taken care of. The family, the, that family that was sitting there paid your, your meal. Wow. And Ooh. I just about lost it. Mm. I just about lost it. And you would have thought, like, that these people had written me a check for, like, $1,000 or something. Like, I just about lost it mm. because I couldn't, God could not have confirmed for me and any greater intensity mm-hmm. that keep to keep going, mm-hmm. to keep moving in this direction. Mm-hmm. They could have eaten anywhere. I could have eaten anywhere. We ended up at Olive Garden in the same section on a quiet day. Yeah. And it was just like God saying, mm-hmm. 
keep moving. Mm-hmm. So um, wow. that's how I got like solidified into this work. And ever since we've been, I've just been doing, you know, kind of mobilizing folks and doing advocacy work and um, trying to get the prosecutor's office to budge. And um, now we're going to be talking to the governor. But people can support. This is what's important. People can support. First of all, you can go and look at Last Defense at justiceforjulius.com. You can follow. We've set up all, uh, he has all uh, social media handles. He's got, um, on Facebook, he's Justice for Julius. I think four is the number four, right? Yes, ma'am. And y'all here, back here behind me, his sister, Antoinette. Justice for Julius, the number four. Um, it's his handle for Facebook. His handle for Twitter is Justice, the number four, Julius. Is that right? Oh, Lord. Okay, we're going to check, folks, so we can tell you good information here. But he's got an Instagram. He's got uh, Facebook. He has Twitter. He has um, a website. There is um, a petition on change.org. If you type in Julius Jones... Uh, it's got about 16,000 signatures right now. We're asking people to sign that petition. That petition is asking the governor and the prosecutor and the attorney general for a retrial for Julius Jones. Um, and so please go to change.org. We also, you also have an opportunity to, after you watch the docu-series, if you want to write him, he'll definitely write you back. Let me give you... Okay. Oh, sorry. Oh, that's Okay. So the handles, give me the handles. What do you have up there? Uh, for Twitter, you're right. It is at Justice4, the number four, Justice4 for Julius. And that's Twitter. Uh-huh. Okay. And then for Instagram, I believe it's um, at Justice4 for Julius. Four had to be spelled out. Um, but you should be able to find him pretty easily on um, on all this stuff. But Jonathan, I'm just really grateful that when I called you and spoke to you about this, that you were just ever so willing. And you're just the kindest, hard, sweetest person ever. You're ever so willing. Because I'm going to tell you, not everybody wants to talk about, because yeah. now this is that deep down stuff. Yes, like, yes, yes. You know, we can talk. This ain't pretty. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I appreciate you being willing to really delve into hard things. Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm doing nothing, easy. I'm so just in awe of even. I just love your response. When you see the documentary, <laughs> next thing you know, you're having a community meeting. You're connecting with the family. I mean, like how many people? I mean, I, I've seen a thousand documentaries that move me, which is, I, I, you know, I'm not trying to prolong a thing, but I think this is something I'd love to, to ask you just before we close out, if you don't mind. I do feel like... Um, I care a lot about this whole conversation. I think it matters, and it matters uniquely. But it is interesting, you know, because I feel like death penalty stuff is not is not sexy. It's never been a fashionable cause. No. There are some things I believe in that have been fashionable. Trendy. Yeah. Uh, AIDS in Africa, yeah. fashionable. Yeah. Um, uh, fighting global hunger, fashionable. Yes. This seems like it's uniquely unsexy in some ways. Uh, it is gritty. There is ambiguity involved at times. And oh, go ahead. What were we say? Yeah, it's. I, I think it is because, especially for people who might um, might identify as pro life. I identify as pro life, mm-hmm. but when I identify as pro life, I identify. I mean it all. Like I mean human flourishing. Mm-hmm. I mean people in the womb. I mean I mean people on death row. I mean everybody. When I'm talking pro-life. And I think a lot of times when people are talking pro-life, they are thinking, well, we can make that distinction because some life is innocent and yeah. some life is guilty. Yeah. And I don't see it that way. I see it as all life bears the image of God. Yes. And God's ultimate ultimate goal for all of us to himself is reconciliation. And we need to give as much space for reconciliation as humanly possible. That's right. And so um, when I and so, but you're absolutely right. Like it's not sexy, and and it was it it. I used to I was confused at first because I thought like why aren't more pro life people mm-hmm. talking about the death penalty, mm-hmm. you know? But then I understood over time it's because we make these separations, distinctions between innocent life and guilty life. Um, and that that moves our needle as to what we're going to be passionate about. Yeah. And um, 
yeah, I you know that's not that's not how I feel. That's mm. not what I that's not what I think. And I think you're, you are speaking this, Cece, but that, that that is cutting to the heart of the question for me because I feel like, especially in time when I think compassion fatigue is a real thing and people are overwhelmed yes. with all these things yes. that can seem urgent. In terms of just articulating something of why you think it is that the death penalty in particular is something that people of faith should be mobilized about. Well, I think it's it should we should be mobilized about mm-hmm. it because we're not, we have normalized it. Mm. Um, I think we should. I think our first our first point of um, mobilization around it is to wake up to the to our own theology around life and death. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, you know. We, you know, we've normalized a practice of taking a otherwise healthy human being and setting a date and training people before that date, training people who I'm going to boldly call our neighbors, training our neighbors to flip switches or administer drugs or, you know, or hold, you know, manipulate some other kind of contraption for the express purpose of ending uh, otherwise healthy human being's life. That is, that is what, uh, that is what countries that we don't want to be like are doing. Yes. You know, that's what China, in terms of human rights, that's what China and Iran and, you know, all these countries that we think we're so much better than are doing. And so, you know, so many of us try to identify our nation as a Christian nation. I, you know, that's a hard one for me, to be honest with you. But Same. Yeah, that's a hard one for me. But for those who would ascribe us as Christian in terms of, you know, our founding fathers, in terms of, you know, our constitution, in terms of the amount of churches we have in this country, what, however, I do not understand how we how we would believe or feel that this would be a Christian ethic. You know yeah. what? I say that, but then I got to back up. I just had a conversation with a friend of mine who's a, who's one of my favorite like theologians. Mm. His name is A.T. Hargrave, and I really want you oh, to. Oh, yeah. You know A.T. Hargrave? From afar, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah. Not personally. Okay. So he, you know, we were having this conversation. He brought up some scriptures to me that, you know, that people use to justify. So, yes, mm. I can. But you know what? For me, at the end of the day, when I think about the adulterous woman, mm-hmm. when I think about her interaction with Jesus in the crowd, you know, we have we have gone so far to try to figure out what Jesus scribbled in the sand mm-hmm. before he stood up and said, you who have no sin, cast the first stone. I don't know. You know, maybe it's words. But back to my holy imagination. Mm-hmm. Maybe it wasn't words. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was just a line. Yeah. And maybe we need to honor a boundary as human beings. Yeah. Maybe Jesus was drawing a line that says, you know, maybe she's justified in being prosecuted, but she's not justified in dying. Mm -hmm. More so, you're not justifying in killing her. That's right. That's right. Right. And so for me, you know, that's where it all boils down. I mean, we can we can argue scripture and I'm not I don't even have time to argue scripture. Like I just Mm -hmm. don't have the energy for it. But. That's what it boils down to me. Well, and I think for me, um, in terms of, you're right, people can prove text anything, but I just can't get around the full revelation of God is Jesus on the cross. The ultimate image of who God is, Mm -hmm. is Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And in the execution of Jesus, I just feel like it's, so many people miss that dimension of the story that the the state-sanctioned violence on display there is exposed as an evil. I mean, yeah. whatever whatever you think about the Old Testament, God ultimately revealed in Jesus exposes these mechanisms as as wrong. And I think it, it is, you know, you brought up the story of the woman uh, caught in adultery. Um, as much as I know we believe and contend for uh, Julius' innocence of his own crime, Jesus does stand up for the guilty. I mean, I think, right. especially when I think about, about death penalty stuff, um, at the end of the day, man, retributive violence just does not work. It doesn't work. It doesn't discourage crime. It doesn't discourage anything. I mean, it fundamentally does not work. That's so right. even like, um, not just from a moral perspective, and for me it is an ethical issue, but pragmatically, this is this does not make the world better. And when you connect this to the larger conversation, which I know we'll have to do a whole separate show on at some point, but the fact that 
one out uh, one in fifteen black men in the state of Oklahoma are incarcerated, and um, the problems <laughs> vastly racially here in terms right. of mass incarceration. Can I give you another stat? Oh, please jump in. So another stat. There was a study that was done by doctors um, Susan Sharp uh, from the Oklahoma, uh, Oklahoma University, University of Oklahoma. Um, her study was around race and the death penalty here in Oklahoma, and what she found was that um, African-American men are three times as likely to receive a death penalty um, sentence than a white, than a white person. Wow. So uh, they're, they're across, not, that's not unique to Oklahoma, mm. across this country. Uh, listen, it is racially biased. The, death, mm-hmm. the, the, the sentencing of the death penalty is racially biased mm-hmm. all the way around. I mean, that for me... That messes with my, that messes with my DNA. Like, mm-hmm. as as an African American woman coming from um, the rural rural Virginia, the South, mm-hmm. you know, it gives me the ultimate spiritual heebie-jeebies yes. to believe that we are still um, killing people. Mm-hmm. And you know, um, I as a black person, I, I would never it, for, you know, as a Christian first, but then as a black woman. Yes. There's no way in the world I could ever be okay with this. It's been done too much to to my folks. Mm-hmm. It's been too been done too much to to people who have not deserved any of it. Mm-hmm. And so there's no way in the world I could I could stand behind this kind of practice, whether it was it was done to black people or whether yeah. it was done to white people. This is not this is this is not how we should be treating each other. And mm-hmm. history should have taught us that lesson a long time ago. Mm-hmm. But but here here we are. I love that Julius said that, and interesting that from his own from all that time and space to reflect that that's where his head is these days. That he mm-hmm. says he wants to read history and loves to read history because he said history just keeps repeating itself. I yeah. think it's interesting that that kind of that that's the wisdom that comes from that sort of time and isolation yeah. is that you see that these are patterns that just keep playing themselves out. Um, I don't. Not, I'm so with you, of course, you know, that I think the death penalty is not just, I think retributive violence is not just in any case, but it is so hard. I mean, I'm not, not being a person of color, it's not something I feel like I can authoritatively speak to, but it just, it just, I just know something when I talk about these things, you'll always have those people who are going to say like, oh, well, that's leftist this or that or whatever. I mean, it's right. not, it's not propaganda, y'all. I mean, we see it every day, just in the, in the last week in the news. If I mean, what a glowing example of. You know, Paul Manafort convicted of all these like really intense white collar crimes, and you get a slap on the wrist at best. That's right. If that's a black man selling a little bit of weed, I mean, like it's this is this is documented. This yeah. is data. This Preach. is facts. I know we're kind of in a post data, post fact time, <laughs> but really, like you know, this is not conjecture. This is no. an opinion. Like this is this is real life. This bears out over and over again. No, it bears out over and over again, and. Um, you know, we have we have to contend. I think, it, especially for people who are interested in the kingdom of God, mm. um, we have to contend. I think for our faith in this way, you know, and that we we recognize and confess the brokenness of our criminal justice system, and um, and give voice to it in such ways that um, move us toward something that is more acceptable. Mm. Um, you know. I, that's that's at least how I understand the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. you know, um, or the work of the kingdom. And I, you know, as I'm, I'm sincerely I try to be as sincere as I can <laughs> in my in my intention and motivation to yeah. to want to see God's kingdom come in, in situations just like this. Mm-hmm. That's why I can't let it go because I I want to see God's kingdom come. Yes, and you know. Uh, I, I have not exegeted well that scripture that talks about the violent taken in by force. Mm. I, I may not know all of what it means, but on an elementary level, I do. And doggone it, we got to be violent about. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> we got to be violent against violence. Yes. You know, and in in yes. um, obviously nonviolent ways, but you understand mm-hmm. spiritually mm-hmm. violent against things that that have come to kill, steal, and destroy. Yes. You know. We just we just do. So I wanted to give uh, folks information about Julius. If you watch the last defense and you want to write him, 
Um, he loves getting mail and it really gives him a lot of hope to hear from people and to correspond with people. So here's what you put on your envelope, folks. So listen up. So Julius is spelled J-U-L-I-U-S. D is his middle initial, Jones. Julius D. Jones is number 270147. 270147. He's at the Oklahoma State Penitentiary. Um, and the Oklahoma State Penitentiary is in McAllister, Oklahoma. That's M-C-A-L-E-S-T-E-R, McAllister, Oklahoma. The zip code is 74502-0097. Um, and you want to make sure that if you write him, you put your full name on the envelope. Full name. Um, to learn more about the death penalty uh, stuff here in Oklahoma, you can go to OKC. ADP is in penalty.org. Uh, and there's a, a nationwide organization here in the U.S. And I think it's called deathpenaltyinfo.org. That's great. Thank you so much, Cece. And I just, um, I know we got to go. I'm just, I'm so inspired because I feel like at heart of what it is to be a Christian is to be a witness. That's all it is, to be a witness. And I think that you, it, it's, it's, it's so simple, but it's so powerful. You saw a documentary that story changed you, that made you want to make a connection. And now you're just, you're bearing witness to that story. And everybody who hears this story has an opportunity to do the same thing. And it really is that simple. I mean, it's, it doesn't have to be overwhelming. It doesn't have to be paralyzed. It, it, you're paralyzing in some way. Like if you hear the story and it moves you, then now there's an obligation, there's a calling then to just continue to share that story. So I just think anything that um, that you guys can do, so people, do still need to sign the petition, right? That's yeah. still helpful. So yeah, signing the petition, um, definitely hitting social media hard would be so appreciated. But, and and we'll continue to keep you, keep you guys in the loop in terms of other developments and things that happen, uh, ways to stay connected. Like I really, really want to keep our listeners connected to Julius and to his story. So That's awesome. Thanks again, Jonathan. And thank everybody for listening. Yeah, thanks so much for being here, you guys. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening today. Remember, you can find out more about how you can get involved at justiceforjulius.com. And please write a letter. More from Jonathan Martin. Go to jonathanmartinwords.com and follow him on Instagram and Twitter. If you want to support this podcast and help us keep going, go to patreon.com slash man, and we appreciate your support. Remember... No matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast will help you come to know the love that calls you by your true name. God bless.